I'm Libby Dimenstein. And I'm Franklin Lee. This is Negotiation Frustration, a critical look at the opioid MDL. We'll be talking about the legal response to one of the great public health crises of the last 20 years. 34,458. That's a pretty big number. Yeah, it is. It's also the number of members in the proposed prescription opioid negotiation class. That's a ton of people. The town I'm from doesn't have that many people. Well, actually, your town is just one of those 34,000. What? 34,458 represents the number of cities and counties in the United States, all of which are in the class that will negotiate with the defendants in the prescription opioid litigation. Wait, so the entire country is a party in this case? Well, kind of. Kind of? What do you mean? What's this case even about? So I'm sure you've heard about the opioid epidemic in America. It started back in the late 1990s when a drug company called Purdue Pharmaceuticals started making Oxycontin, this new prescription opioid that was a super powerful and long-lasting painkiller. And Purdue told doctors and patients in the FDA that Oxycontin wasn't addictive, but that wasn't true, and Purdue knew it. So did other drug companies who started manufacturing their own versions of the drug. Doctors overprescribed the pills, and drug distributors and pharmacies were only too happy to fulfill these requests even when there's something clearly wrong going on. One egregious example. Pharma companies sent 20 million pills over 10 years to Williamson, West Virginia, a town of only 3,200. There was a lot of money involved in flooding America with opioids, so no one wanted to rock the boat. People became addicted to the painkillers and then started using other opiates like heroin and fentanyl, which are even more dangerous. This crisis has caused over 400,000 deaths in the past 20 years, with millions of Americans currently addicted to opioids. And the companies just got away with it? Well, that's where this lawsuit comes in. In the past few years, cities and counties across the country have started filing lawsuits against the opioid manufacturers, distributors, and pharmacies, alleging that these parties misrepresented the risks of opioid use and failed to properly monitor the vast quantities of painkillers being sold. In 2017, a judicial panel consolidated a lot of these cases into something called a federal multi-district litigation, or an MDL, in the Northern District of Ohio. MDLs are great tools for situations in which many cases allege the same facts and could be litigated together. Class actions serve a similar purpose, but all the members of class action need to be similarly situated, which they just aren't in this case. It's kind of hard to find parallels between New York City and Williamson, West Virginia. In MDLs, cases can be more easily consolidated across plaintiffs, and after a shared discovery process in one court, the cases are remanded back to the courts they came from, assuming they don't settle first, which is usually what happens. Right now, there are over 2,000 cities and county plaintiffs in the MDL. But I thought you said earlier there were more than 34,000. That's the interesting thing. People worried that defendants wouldn't want to settle with the plaintiffs in the MDL because they could still be sued by other cities and counties, which, obviously, they don't want. So the court invented something new, a negotiation class. This class includes every city and county in the country and allows them to jointly negotiate a settlement with the defendants. Any city or county can opt out of the class by November 22nd, But if they don't, they will be bound by the class's decision. As long as 75% of the members vote for whatever settlement is reached, the cities and counties who don't like it won't have a choice but to accept that settlement's terms. That's a major difference from a typical class, where plaintiffs who don't like the terms of a settlement can opt out and file a new case. So has there been a settlement? There have been some smaller settlements, as you might have seen in the news, but not the really big ones that the negotiation class is after. And there's a few reasons for that. First, it's difficult to directly attribute blame to any single defendant here, because there are just so many actors who have contributed to the epidemic. I spoke with Richard Osnes, a professor at the University of Kentucky, who's been studying the opioid MDL. He explained, Essentially, the the argument is um, uh, 
and it's stronger for the manufacturers than it is for some of the other plaintiffs or other defendants. But um, there are a whole lot of independent actors between them, between the manufacturers selling a product uh, and the opioid epidemic that is the uh, focus of all of this. You know, you've got overprescribing doctors, you've got negligent distributors, you've got addicts uh, who misuse the product, so on and so forth. And so uh, the uh, defendants, uh, if they were to litigate it, could definitely argue, hey, there, there are too many intervening causes here. And uh, so we, we, our responsibility is more attenuated um, as a result of that. So defendants could try, and they have been trying, to minimize their damages in any settlement by pushing blame on everyone but themselves, whether that's other defendants or non-parties like doctors or the FDA or even the patients who were prescribed painkillers and then became addicted. Another big issue here is that a lot of state attorneys general oppose the MDL and the negotiation class. Why would the states oppose it? Well, there's a couple different layers. First, the settlement money would go directly to cities and counties and not to the states, which aren't a part of the MDL or the negotiation class. A lot of state AGs think that their states could use the money more effectively than local governments. And they're also worried that these settlements will drain the defendants and leave very little money left over for state governments and state initiatives to abate the opioid crisis. But the cities and counties don't trust the states, and with good reason after what happened in the tobacco settlement. And their track record isn't very good, uh, at least as far as the tobacco settlement was concerned. They didn't spend very much on anti-smoking uh, efforts, uh, and I've already seen some uh, warning signs that uh, that might happen again. Uh, for example, after the uh, Oklahoma AG settled with uh, some of the parties, uh, not J&J, &J, but the rest of them, uh, the legislature immediately passed a statute saying you can't earmark it for opioid treatment, you have to put it in the state treasury. Well, you can see where they're coming from. On top of this distrust, state attorneys general have other reasons for opposing a settlement. Professor Jennifer Oliva, who teaches at Seton Hall, is concerned that AGs have been captured by the drug industry. Yeah, I think that there's several factors. There's There are political factors, and then there's what, what does your state do? And I'm, I'm in New Jersey right now, which is a big life sciences state, right? So do you want to run Johnson & Johnson and try to run them out of business, right, in the state of New Jersey when they're one of our largest employers? That is going to factor into any AG, regardless of their political persuasion. But there's also been a lot of press lately, and I'm sure you guys have seen it, about um, how influential pharma was and sort of the on the Republican AG side of the House. Both parties have accepted donations from Big Pharma, the very companies that they're suing. These are elected officials who run for office that have to, you know, build up their campaign stocks. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of politics involved uh, insofar as the state AGs are concerned. So as you can see, there are a lot of issues preventing settlement. But even if the parties do settle, Professor Oliva isn't convinced that that's the best outcome. A settlement means that our local governments will receive a lot of money which can go towards things like funding treatment and public health initiatives and other ways of abating the epidemic. Plaintiffs also argue that a settlement, especially a massive one, is a tacit admission of guilt from the defendants. On the other hand, I tend to empathize with the argument that, um, that a public airing and, and sort of justice-seeking is one of the functions of litigation, and it's actually really instrumentally important. If we had the, doc the documents 
and could actually analyze what happened here in the secret litigation where everything's under a seal and could look at their behavior, I think that that would, that would be some justice for the public. The largest settlement in history was the tobacco litigation, largest mass sort settlement in history, 200 plus billion dollars. And the good that was done from that had nothing to do with the money. But what was good about it was these truth initiatives, uh, these anti-tobacco campaigns. Uh, one thing that was extremely helpful is raising tobacco taxes because the they're very elastic, pricing-wise, and um, getting the documents so people could see, look, these folks knew about this for a really long period of time, were really deceptive and manipulative, and that really sort of, uh, it, it, it garnered a bunch of public support for more active regulation of tobacco companies. And here, the regulatory and reforms that could be made to some of these statutes are faster, cheaper, and easier um, but you you don't get the sort of the public support for them unless the public actually finds out what happened. I think Professor Oliva's argument is really compelling, and I share some of her concerns that the push for settlement will fail to hold the defendants fully accountable. But there is room for optimism. The lawyers involved in the litigation and the settlement talks have made transparency one of their main goals. Jane Conroy, co-lead counsel for the negotiation class, wants everything the defendants did out in public. With respect to transparency, um, there's no question that we are looking for total transparency. We always do. And we want all of the information, the marketing information, the distribution, the um, failure to uh, to follow the law with respect to the, uh, the, the huge oversupply of opioids. All of that we want to be completely public. And we've worked toward that in releasing documents all the way through this litigation and really pushing different, you know, pushing motions and summary judgments and and, and the like to make sure that that information gets out to the public. Ultimately, even though it's clearly imperfect, the opioid MDL and negotiation class might be the best tools we have to get the companies that caused the crisis to pay for what they've done. The money coming from a potential settlement could go a long way towards the fight to end the crisis if states and local governments can get their acts together and work things out. As Jane Conroy says, and I also think it's it's a very interesting situation to watch when you have a, na- a nationwide litigation like this, how it's possible to try to craft an, an abatement of this problem or to try to craft something that would slow down this epidemic. And we know that what we need to do is going to take 20 to 30 years. So it's a very different process to see a court oversee that type of process. Usually that's That's a legislative function. But here, it looks like the courts were really the only place that could begin to tackle this problem because it just wasn't possible to do it in individual communities in their political process. So we're really looking at the courts to solve a social issue here. And so it's a a real intersection of, of of a crisis with the judicial system that I'm not sure I've seen in my career. And... I hope we don't see anything else like this, but if we do, this is really going to be groundbreaking for the way for the way the court system can step in and be of assistance in, in solving these kinds of problems. This episode was produced by Matt Bendish and Will Flanagan. Script and editing by Ross Hildebrand, Franklin Lee, and myself, Libby Dimenstein. Thanks to Richard Osnes, Jennifer Oliva, Jane Conroy, Elizabeth Birch, Professor Hansen, the Torts Teaching Team, the Cabot Science Library, and, of course, to you, our listeners.